Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Pendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Louisa Murray, COO of Rails Bank. Louisa joined Rails Bank as the fourth employee in 2017 and built a sales function from scratch. Initially acting as VP head of sales, she developed the large customer base on which Rails Bank has built its success, led the company's growth strategy across business units and regions, and oversaw global marketing activities. Prior to this role, she worked as a trader, headhunter, and even ran her own recruitment business. Last year, Rails Bank raised $70 million in new equity funding, enabling it to double its employees from 250 to 500 globally and continue growing internationally into the embedded finance space. In this episode, we talk about the rise of the embedded finance, making the fintech industry more accessible to women, and lessons learned in building and scaling a fast-growing fintech company. Welcome, Louisa. I wanted to start off the podcast understanding a little bit about your journey. Can you tell me the road you took to where you are today, COO of Rails Bank, and highlights or, or important events that led you to uh, your current role at Rails Bank? Absolutely. It's a very long story, I'm afraid. But, but started about 34 years ago when I joined a US stockbroking company called Smith Barney as an assistant. I really want to get more involved here. And I went to one of the, the brokers there, a, a youngish German broker, and uh, said, oh, this is so exciting. When do you think my career path is going to progress and I'm going to be able to be one of the brokers? And he said, you will absolutely have no chance. You know, you're a woman, you're young. It's not going to happen. So I was a little bit dejected, but he, he did give me some good advice. He mentioned somebody else, another German guy who was in the process of setting up a, a derivatives trading department at a Canadian bank, Woodgundy CRBC, and I went for an interview, got the job, and that started a really exciting part of my career. And literally, thanks to Marcus Feder and the team there, I went on to start running a book within a year. At that point, it was a Deutschmark trading book, and and you know, stayed there for quite a few years. Had a really good team around there. We had a, a wonderful trader, a lady trader who came over from Canada called Sue Story, and she was a, a brilliant mentor to have as well. And she'd been one of the first women FX traders. Worked with some great people. One of those who then went over to Barclays and said to me, oh, Lou, you must come here. I said, oh, I don't want to. You've already got a Deutschmark trader. I don't want to trade another currency. And it was, you know, 
you know, obviously a, a big currency at the time. And he said, oh, you know, the Deutsche Mark trade is going to be leaving in a few months. Bonuses are not going to be as great. And you know, come in, Deutsche shillings, Belgian francs. So I did that. And literally within a couple of months, I had the Deutsche Mark book. And then that turned into the Euro book. And I stayed there quite a few years. I then had three children in the space of two and a half years. So I didn't so much take a career break, but I tried some entrepreneurial things for a little while. I opened up a chain of children's indoor playgrounds, but eventually realized that wasn't for me and went back to trading and worked for a few small hedge funds and, and traded for myself for a little while as well. I very much stayed on that finance path until I I got to my early 40s and I thought I really do need to do something different but rather than looking at those two numbers 50-52, 50-52. I decided to take a break, I turned into a permanent break from trading. Again, looked at some entrepreneurial things, like looked at a little bit of energy type of businesses, solar energy, water, etc. And then also started up at the same time a fintech headhunters business, which put me in contact with the founders of Rails Bank. So met them in the largest WeWork of the time. I pretty much probably still is the largest one in Morgate in the city and started to chat to the co-founder, Nigel, LinkedIn with him. He didn't accept my LinkedIn. So then I cornered him in the lift and we got chatting and, and we realized we had a lot of experience the same in the city and started talking. I did a bit of office sharing with them and never moved out after that. This is pre the Railsband platform going live. And I could really see even just, you know, before it going live, I see, I could see the enormity of what it could actually be and how exciting it could be, you know, what it could do for innovators and, and startups. I said to Nigel and Clive, well, can I do the um, uh, sales on this? And they said, you're a trader. But I said, well, I was very much a customer focused trader. You know, I'd be, you know, when I, when I was trading, I'd, you know, get all the sales team on my side, go out and see the central banks, go and see all the pension funds. So, you know, it was an easy transition for me. And then eventually, you know, Nigel and Clive said, oh, yeah, go on, take it and, and run with it and see what, what happens. And for the first 18 months, it was pretty much just me and, and Nigel really talking to all the customers, getting all the pain points, why they buy from us, the commercials, etc. And then once we've proved that it was going to start somewhere and really grow, I started to hire the sales team here in UK and Europe and then in Southeast Asia as well. And then that, that started to go really well. We've got a couple of hundred customers. And as we were expanding, Nigel said to me, would you be CEO of UK and Europe? And yeah, I'd have to think about it a little bit because historically my roles have been very much target driven. Ultimately, it was a too good of opportunity to refuse. Wow. What an incredible journey you've had, Louisa. I think it's so inspiring to see women like you in the fintech space, trailblazing everything from being a trader to head of sales to COO. Those are all really hard, challenging positions. And I would love to hear if there are people in the audience, younger women maybe, that are in the fintech world, what advice would you give them in terms of how to grow your professional career? You have to be very professional. I'm not saying you have to outperform, but you really have to be on your top game at all times. I've always had that mentality. And I think it goes back to pre even working, whereas I was in sports a lot. So that was netball, tennis, horse riding. 
that you can have a bad day, but you still have to get up the next day and, and start afresh, learn from what went on. And you followed that through into training because in training, you really don't have a good day every day. There could be some really disastrous days and you go home, you brush yourself down and you get up the next morning and do it all again. It's the, the advice I give to my daughter, who's you know just 21 starting to look for roles when she graduates this year when you say oh I've applied for lots of different things keep applying keep doing it yep. yeah keep learning even do interviews that maybe are not what you want to do ultimately give yourself as much experience as you can speak to as many people as you can communication is so key in this and, and having a good support network around you of other ladies dragging you up or pushing you up you need that and i go back to my previous comments about having uh, sue story as somebody to look up to ah yeah she can do it. She's she immigrated over from Ireland to Toronto, started trading, and had a fabulous career. You got you want to emulate people like that, but you really have got to put yourself in a strong position. Yep. Get there every day and be the best you can. So push yourself. Don't give up. Continue persevering, and and look up to role models. I'm sure there are a lot more people now that you can look up to in fintech as role models, women who are CEOs, founders in very senior leadership positions. But when you were going through this, if you had a low point or you weren't sure what to do, where did you look for advice? You've got to have that support network, not just women, but men as well. There's two guys that I started trading with at CIBC, Charles Colborne, David Clamp. They're still really good friends of mine. We, we have you know, lunch every year, Charles and I, yeah, David and I. He lives in South Africa. I'll go and see him. And they support. I supported them when they needed it. You need people around you to do that. And trading is one of those areas where you need people to say, you've had a bad day, but you can do this. You've had good times too. And likewise in business now, not every decision you make is right. So you mentioned that you had three children in a span of 2.5 years. How did you manage to do that and maintain your career? Can you advise women that are, again, looking to start a family and are worried about being in fintech because it's got a reputation for not being very family friendly? I think you've got to choose your fintech wisely where you are. A lot of these companies are startups, so maybe don't have the benefit packages. And, you know, I know for sure we didn't in Rails Bank at the beginning, but we're getting there. We have got much more of them. And I think the more women that are involved, the more supportive everyone is, the more advice everyone gives and gets. Again, trading I went back to work pretty much straight away and I wouldn't recommend that, but it was a different time. And I think now we do give much more support in that way. Choose your fintechs wisely. Again, you need a support network as well. I was really lucky. I have my parents and all the way up to the children being in their teens and before they went to university, my mum helped me. I was a single parent for 10 years as well. And my mum was fantastic. And my dad, they were great. Okay. Let's talk about your role before the COO role. You were head of sales for Rails Bank. And I know that one of the things you told me earlier is that you managed to have a 50-50 men to women ratio. I think having a really good sales team And creating a really good sales team is a skill on its own. What is your style of building and managing a high-performing sales team? Obviously, sales is all about relationships. And number one for me, having been on the other side, was would I buy off of these people? 
Are they likable? Can they sell? Can they articulate the products and our customer experience? Very much from the beginning, it was those type of people. My first two sales hires were women that had not come from a sales background necessarily, but also had a career break for children. And they've been amazing. Absolutely amazing. Kareen, a lovely French lady, kept knocking on my door and saying, I really want to be in fintech. I've been a wealth manager. Please give me an opportunity. I've done this before myself, wanted experience, but she did this so many times. I said, let's give it a go. And she's been fantastic. And she runs the, the fintech sales team now. Arantxa came to me, same kind of thing, really driven, passionate Spanish lady, amazing with our customers as well. And, and she's gone off to, to have a great role within customer success. So it's employing those type of people that you enjoy being around are good salespeople too, closers. And I, I'd say that definitely for the first 10, 20 people I've hired, they've all been closers. How do you identify closers? What are questions you would ask in an interview to identify people that are driven, that are passionate? It is have a determination. So it's understanding what we do, but having the determination to see the deal the whole way through. And you're not passing it on to someone, especially in startups. You're taking that first call, you're qualifying yourself, and then you're running with that deal to the end. You don't get paid a commission until that deal has finished. There have been very few that haven't had that ability. And they've all had to strive in previous careers. I haven't had to teach them to sell. They've all had that ability already. And the closing bit, I think, is just is natural in that type of person that they want to see it the whole way through. And the exciting thing is what we do here is that you see the next stage of it as well. So once you've sold to them, once they sign that contract, they then have to go through a part of going live. And it's out there in the public domain. We can see them grow. It's not of just a faceless company you're doing here. You're literally setting up companies to become the next unicorn. Yeah. And that's the really exciting thing. I'm friends with lots of my customers. The scaling ones will say to me, well, can you introduce us to some investors? We're at a next stage of our scale. Is there anyone you think that'd be interested in this? I've got real data because I can see how they have scaled. I can see the team. We can see the, the founding team. We can see who they've hired. They've brought in expertise, maybe when they didn't have that expertise. So yeah, it's given us a really good vision on what's out there. Louisa, you've done sales at Rails Bank for a while now before your COO role. What are the skills that make for a good sales leader? It's, it's a very good question. I think you've got to be very strong. You've got to lead from the front. Now, you don't want to be dragging people behind you, for sure. So you want everyone skipping behind you happy. They're engaged. They know where they're going with this. They know what they're going to earn. They know what their targets are. They know who they've got to sign. So that everyone is totally bought into the vision. They're equipped with the right skills to close the deal. So they've got the right product knowledge, the right sales skills, and, and really feel engaged and involved with the team. And it's all those type of people that there's high engagement and really determined to help and work as a team together. Sales has this reputation of being very aggressive, where the sales leader is somebody who's quite tough on their sales team and no empathy. And I was just wondering if you think that's important. I wouldn't say that's me. I and mean, we've had times in the last couple of years where we've had some sad times within the sales team and family members dying and things. So that, no, that's not, you, you've got to be very numbers orientated and focused on that because ultimately what you're there to do. 
But as I say, you've got to be that person that the team want to work for and want to do their best. So it's not by slapping them and whipping everyone within an inch of their life. It's ensuring that they are equipped to do what they've got to do. How do you motivate your sales team? A lot of it is expectation. Expectation that if you do this, you're going to get that. You're going to look amazing as well. You're going to be a star in the team and you've got that career progression. Everyone wants career progression, not just, you know, bang for a buck. Everyone wants that progression as well. I've got some people that have really can see their career path and that's important, whatever role you're in. That makes a lot of sense. I think money can't be the only motivator for most people, especially if you want to retain talent for a long time. Okay, let me talk about embedded finance and Rails Bank. I hear about banking as a service. I hear about embedded finance. What is the difference between those terms that I hear? Tell me a little bit about the space that you're in and what's driving the current trends in your space. We are all about the embedded finance experience. So ostensibly, we've been set up to allow any type of company, whether you're a fintech startup, a fintech scale-up, an insurance company, a sports brand, a retail brand, to embed a financial experience into their customer journey and to be able to do that frictionlessly, everything's white-labeled, and it just becomes part of the journey. We started this journey ourselves five years ago. I spoke to lots of startups, as I mentioned, and scale-ups, and helped them grow their business. Lots of them had a problem to solve and great innovation, and that carries on. There'll be hundreds of thousands more of these type of companies. But what has become apparent at the same time is that there's other types of companies that can benefit from these kind of products. So we've widened our remit and are speaking to lots of brands. And those brands have within them a bunch of micro economies. That could be the fan economy and certain types of fan within that micro economy, retail, travel, gig workers, etc. And, and all of these type of companies tend to have a very loyal customer or fan base. As a football team, you tend not to you know, lose your fans unless you did absolutely disastrously. But even then, most fans are with a club for life. And with retailers, depending where you live, Sainsbury's or Tesco's, Asda, or, or time of your life. And so, you know, when you get children, you might move from one of the more expensive, you know, Waitrose down to an Asda or, or something. So you're there or thereabouts within those economies. And what we're doing is helping those type of companies engage with their customers in different kind of ways. What are some of the ways? Is it selling? Is it helping brands sell like bundled insurance? Is it just payments? You know, you're getting the data from a financial transaction, basically. And that financial transaction can be opening a wallet or a, you know, a ledger, a bank account, whatever you want to call it, being able to load that using open banking to pull money or open banking to see mm-hmm. if you were doing a lending type product, what's the state of that account? attaching a card to that. And that card can be for a debit card for payment, can be credit, embedding buy now, pay later mm-hmm. into that journey as well, if required, and different types of credit and banking products. So you know, it absolutely depends on the use case. And th- this is the beauty of this, is that we're supplying all of those capabilities, components of the journey. And it's 
up to our customers, the brands, the fintechs, decide how they want to embed them in their customer journey. What are some of the trends you're seeing in this space? What do you see as the future of embedded finance? Obviously, you're very bullish about it. That's why you're in it. You think everyone can basically bundle financial products within their offering and get an additional revenue stream. But at the same time, what are you seeing as maybe some challenges in this space? There's been lots of surveys around the type of companies that people will buy from. And it's become apparent that unless you're in a certain generation, you're more open to who you buy these kind of products from or invest with or get insurance with. Everyone's much more open-minded and particularly millennials and down. But even in the markets of buy now, pay later and things, that's moving up to the older people. We're absolutely allowing our customers to offer more flexible mm-hmm. credit propositions. So not just a debit or a credit card, we do that, but also allowing them to change the terms of the loans or do buy now, pay later and, and doing that. So it's just all part of the journey and people don't realize you're doing it. I don't go out and wake up this morning and say, oh, I'm going to do some UK faster payments or I'm going to do some buy now, pay later. I don't do that. I wake up and think, ah, I need to send my mum some money. And I need to, oh, I'd love to buy that pair of trousers or anthropology or something. And that's all part of that journey. And another very important part will be the data from it as well. So if I'm a football club or a golf tour or something like that, how amazing would it be to, number one, see what my fans are doing before they get to the stadium or after Mm -hmm. they leave the stadium? What are they eating? Where are they shopping? Data from that or, you know. What are my fans doing in South Korea? I'm a Tottenham fan. Son is one of the the footballers there. There's a huge following in South Korea. What are they doing? How can we engage with them more? What kind of content do they want? It's not just all about the merchandise, but also bringing the fan bases together. So all of that is data that is like gold dust for the retailer or for the club. And and, and they're getting that data from a kind of financial footprint. Which areas are you seeing the most opportunity in? Where are you seeing the most growth in the different sectors that you're going after? I'd say at this stage of the journey, it's potential. So you've got a number of entities such as fans, such as retail, such as travel that will start to come back as well. There's enormous potential there. And the football clubs have got tens of millions of, of fans. Formula One, it's a truly global company. The fans are from every single continent. It travels around the world. So these types of brands have got a global vision. You talk about global and brands. I wonder, has Brexit affected the offering that Rails Bank has and how these brands can really leverage these type of revenue streams well, so obviously the market for, for UK-based companies is a lot smaller. It was very tricky coming up to Brexit and we didn't really have a Christmas and New Year that year because we had to set up about 50, 60 companies, maybe more actually. They all had to have entities in Europe and they all had to become regulated. So that's, that's two costs. So they've gone from just one cost in the UK, whole of the European markets are now One cost in the UK for 60 million odd people and then one cost in Europe for them. I don't know, 360 million. I don't know who would want to lose out on that. 
So it's just something that had to be done. We were lucky because we'd set ourselves up in Europe quite a bit before that. So it was just a case of moving all the customers over. And going forward, there's still IBAN discrimination and things like that. So you still need to certain countries we need branches in and things. It's, it, you say it's one Europe, but there's still a little, few little idiosyncrasies there and onboarding as a customer or an end user different countries have slightly different variants of what you can do but ultimately it was amazing because we didn't lose any customers and they could carry on the business that they wanted to do and the beauty of Rouse Bank is that we are a truly global company so if you've got ambition for the UK great you can use us you could probably use a couple of others but if you've got ambition to be in Europe be in Singapore be in Australia and the States then we're, we're a, a small handful of companies that can actually do that. You know, this is a, a podcast for entrepreneurs. We have a lot of entrepreneurs in the fintech space. Where do you see the opportunities for fintech companies? One of my customers is Plum, which is a great savings investment app. I use it. My children use it. It's a great one to demo. And that's a kind of company that really proved what it could do here in the UK. They came to us to scale because they couldn't do that with their initial launch partner. Came to us to scale about three years ago and they're knocking it out of the park in the UK and now they're doing it in Europe as well. So it's having something you can replicate to scale. The type of person is very single-minded, great leader, having a very strong vision. Okay, what about this Ukraine-Russia conflict? There's a lot of talk about how, because the Western countries are banning SWIFT and other ways that Russia could do transactions. Have you seen any interesting patterns or trends because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict? I would say we haven't seen anything yet. Maybe too early from our side. We haven't seen anything. Obviously, we've got some customers who maybe be affected. We've got quite a lot of team members out there that are so far so good all safe and and some of them I can't believe are still working and going about their their daily lives so you know unbelievably we've got a big team in Lithuania we've got 60 people in Lithuania who are rightly so a little bit concerned but very supportive of the Ukrainian colleagues as well looking and doing what we can to help but from a actual is it changing our business too much at the moment no that's excellent I know that you've just raised 70 million in a new round of funding. You've hired and you've grown headcount from 120 to 500 people. Tell me a little bit about some of the challenges that you face, especially now in your position as COO, in terms of scaling a company in this kind of hyper growth mode. What are some of the operations or organizational design you had to change from how it was before to how it is now? We had to hire some really good people at senior level initially, and then we've had to allow them to hire their team. But two years ago, pre-COVID, literally this time, two years ago, we were 120 people and you know, about 550 now. So huge amount of hiring, lots of training has to be done at the beginning. Obviously, we're a regulated business as well. So everyone has to do compliance training when they come in. You physically have to get a laptop and everything to everyone. So there's been some creaking at the seams for sure on this. But we've, and I literally spent most of last year hiring and 
not only me, but other senior people within Rouse Bank, had to spend a lot of the year hiring a really good bunch of people. We've done that now and we have to let them build their teams out. We have an executive committee where the more senior people reside and that kind of gets bigger as well. But we have to trust our team. We have to make sure everyone's valued. We have monthly all hands where we have a very open forum for questions. We've acquired a couple of companies from, you know, Wirecard, et cetera. So you've got to bring everyone into the vision. It's not easy, but it's that constant communication and striving for better things and, you know, growing the people team. We've done that, you know, employee engagement team. We've concentrated in those type of areas. And the good thing is, as we've gone up, as we've grown, that's getting better and better for us. We have come to the formal end of the podcast, but I have a rapid round question that I love to ask, which is more about getting to know you as a person. And I usually start with, what's your favorite book? What have you read that made an impact on you in any way? I had a very old book that started my love of reading. That's Little Women. Yeah. She was called Louisa as well. And uh, Louisa May Alcott. Yes. And yeah, and it and it just started my love of reading. And you can ask my mum, I used to be like this as I ate breakfast every day. But that's the passionate reader. I don't get so much time yeah. these days. That, that really started my love of reading. Oh, lovely. And what's your favorite European city if you had to choose a place to live? If I had to choose a place to live, place to live would be Lisbon. I love it as a city. I love what's around it as well. So I love Comport, Troia. So it's like a, it's the longest beach at Troia. And I think it's the longest beach in Europe. White sand, quite the whole cold sea. But I love that area and then I love Lisbon. I've been there many years ago and I've been there more recently. And it's just, yeah, brings me back. Lovely. And what is a productivity hack or tip? or tool that you use to keep you productive? Lists of lists. Is it digital or analog? No, I'm sorry. I'm a write it all down yeah. on my iPad. I've tried it. I mean, I've got some notes on my phone and iPads and, and laptops and things. I'd have the boards as well with it literally in front of me there. Like, ah, yeah, got to do that. When you're running multiple teams and initiatives and everything, and, and you know, especially in sales, when there were some big customers we really wanted to target, it was great just to have them there and, yeah, and also numbers in front. And my last question is on a quote, a favorite quote, that you have it could be yours or someone else's but something that you believe go by or use a lot always two sides to a story maybe there's arguments and things like that but always two sides to a story and and brush yourself up and get back on the horse lovely thank you so much Louisa for being on the podcast today I really enjoyed our conversation and hearing about your journey and how you got to where you are. And hopefully it inspired other women to take that step and take that next level and improve the balance of men and women in fintech. So thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, keep building. 